If you could make the soundtrack to your life a mixtape, what songs would you choose? Welcome to Almost a Mirror, a podcast about Australian music from the late 1970s and 80s, where the post-punk world of the Crystal Ballroom collides with the pop icons of Countdown. Come with me, Kirsten Krauth, on a personal journey through music and memory, where each episode is sparked by a song. In this episode, we enter the Mirage, the heat haze of Perth and the Australian interior. We look at drive, in cars and as creative impulse, the loss and longing of touring, long-distance love, and remember the devotion and faith of David McComb. The song, Wide Open Road by the Triffids. drums went off my forehead and the guns went off my chest. Just such a beautiful image could be the feeling that you have when you see somebody and you fall in love with them. That, that was certainly what I was thinking anyway, this thing in your head and your chest, you know, the sort of coordination of the heart and the brain as it set off in this seismic way. The tempo is perfect for driving to. The Germans call it a motoric beat. Metrische means driving, sort of beat. It's very particular. A hymn and a calling card to the, to the sound of the freeways where you can drive pretty much as fast as you want. Well, it immediately conjures up images of driving across the Malibor as a teenager, heading into an uncertain future, which the scientists started in Adelaide in early 79 touring. I don't know if you've ever been across the Malibor plain, but it's very wide and very open and very flat and straight. If you are the actual driver, it's pretty relentless. There's this thing called highway hypnosis that was first recognised in America. With, you know, long-distance truck drivers. I used to drive for up to 12 hours at a stretch, but you can actually, particularly at dusk or at night time, get into a bit of a hypnotic state with the white lines just sort of flashing past your eyes, losing bearings on where you are with a lack of light. That was Sydney musician Jason Walker and Ben Juniper from The Scientists, a band who played on the same bill as the Triffids in Perth. Here's Phil Kukulis, a bandmate and friend of David McCombs from the very beginning. I can remember a group called Martha's Vineyard in the later 80s and we were doing a ridiculous tour around the country and we had the stupid idea that it would be economically sound to drive from Sydney to Adelaide overnight and save a night's accommodation. Having played that night, we just took off. We were in two vehicles and it was about two or three in the morning on the highway. A wide open road came on whatever the mixtape was. And I thought, oh, well, this is really evocative, isn't it? It was a clear night. The moon stars were shining and we we're on an open road in the middle of the Australian bush. And I'm in the car behind and all of a sudden the van in front of us that's carrying the other half of the group veers off the road and starts heading towards the fence. Fuck, we're going to crash. And what seemed like an eternity, but I'm sure it was only moments, the driver, our drummer, Aidan, must have woken up and corrected and skidded and managed to save himself and the other members. 
all the time the song Wide Open Road was playing. When I lived in London, I'd listened to almost nothing but the Triffids because it just made me so homesick. I've spent a lot of time travelling around Australia and there really is no better songwriter to bring to mind those long stretches of road, those beautiful beaches, the big skies. My favourite part is that little bit at the very beginning where you hear Dave counting the numbers before he starts singing. I love that little intimate snippet that is so sort of unnecessary. Yeah, it's beautiful. When you're in Perth, you're so far away from the rest of the country. You spend a lot of time on those big wide open roads and I still love them. My recipe for happiness even now involves a car, a wide open road, music and a full tank of petrol. That was David's friend Nicole Jenkins from Perth. Here's Steve Kilby from the church. Well, it's just a fucking classic. Every now and then someone comes along with a mind-blowing song that's just so full of emotion and everything about it's just fantastic and he nailed it i reckon it felt australian i really had to admire those guys because i couldn't get australia into my songs i can now i'm very comfortable with it but in those days my songs were all like if it was australia then it was an alleyway in surrey hills it wasn't a treeless plain I couldn't find anything in that. I think the Triffids and the Go-Betweens showed the way of trying to get that sort of feeling. The lyrics for Wide Open Road, as with all of David's lyrics, are a mix-up of emotions about internal atmospherics, what is endured and weathered within, as much as external landscape. Here's Graham Lee from the Triffids. In his notebooks for the whole of Born Sandy Devotion, there's a paragraph about each song. And the White Appen Road one says, Melbourne, Julian woos the whole thing very quickly in the morning, playing every night to big audiences, speaking to, and I won't say the name because I know Dave never wanted the names of his uh, lovers to be spread around, speaking to <clears throat> on the phone, knowing she was with him. I woke up one morning and there was a vodka bottle beside me and a blues program on the radio, then a program about sex. I decided to be blunt. The hymn that David is referring to is Grant McLennan from The Go-Betweens. That is true. Yeah, right. Um, And that whole relationship and Grant stepping in, that's the whole of... Born Sandy devotional in lots of ways. And even in the outro to Wide Open Road, those two guitars doing a kind of round because it's so, such a go-betweensy kind of a thing. Mm, yeah. That's Dave's clue to everybody who it was. <laughs> While I can see the salt flats and the heat haze and main thrust of the song for me is, as Dave wrote himself, it's a blunt song about revenge and jealousy. It's funny that it would be used for car ads and tourist campaigns, sort of as a quintessentially Australian song. I'm sure Dave never thought of it that way. Being a writer myself and also having had many discussions with him about writing, you know, writers draw on many aspects of their experience, their life and their imagination, picking little moments here and there for songs. And he was also very interested in the idea of the narrator, the protagonist, you know, he used to read and talk a lot about Southern Gothic, the characters of all his songs, many of them are suicides. So Wide Open Road is talking about someone who's brokenhearted, but also like a vengeful pursuer who has a lot of texture and space. But I think about his thoughts 
on a, creating a character in the song and how the, the song doesn't necessarily represent the singer's literal life, but the singer is in a way an actor portraying a character. That was Megan Simpson-Huberman, a writer, frequent collaborator of David's as director of many of the Triffids music videos, and his girlfriend in earlier years. Here's Bled and Butcher, David's friend and photographer, who wrote Save What You Can, a detailed account of the band's history. I think of what Dave does with that image, now how he turns that vast, empty landscape into a symbol of his own despair. The obvious move for a writer would be to use that metaphor as a symbol of freedom and release. But Dave, or the character that he assumes, is, is daunted by the freedom of the wide open road. Freedom signifies the loss of friends, separation from family, and to some extent, derangement, because Ultimately, what the uh, song expresses is a deep sense of betrayal. How do you think it feels sleeping by yourself when the one you love is with someone else? It's used in another song of the same name, which was written by Johnny Cash in, I think, 1955. Cash's song is also addressed to a faithless or restless lover, but his song is more of an admonition than a howl of despair. He warns his lover that if she won't turn her damper down, an old blues phrase. She knows where the door is. And outside that door, there's a wide open road, baby. But Dave's narrator is not so forgiving. It has always made me think of someone at the very edge of of reason, like someone who's full of anguish about having lost something or someone who was vital or very precious to them. It's someone who's lost everything. As so many of the songs on Bourne Sandy Devotional are, they're adrift, they're kind of, you know, lost at sea, but they're on land. Yeah, isn't it funny how Australians have decided it's like an iconic Australian song that represents some idea of themselves, but it's so far away from that. I, I think so, and part of that's to do with the video, with cars travelling over almost desert roads and clouds and aerial views. People have become predisposed to thinking it's about Western Australia or, you know, the desolation of the landscape, but I think it's about someone being desolate. That was Pat Monaghan from Rocksteady Records, a friend of the band from the early years, and here's Angie Hart from Frente. It's conjured up feelings of the loneliness of being on tour and that largeness of, of being in Australia. It's the sound and feel of the song. And then that rhythmic clack of the song, I can just see myself in a car with the view going by and so many times being in your own head and having that roaming time of being on tour when you're left to your own devices and you can really go a lot of not great places in your mind. <laughs> For the Triffids themselves, hearing the song brings back different recollections how it was made and came to life in the studio. Here's Rob McComb, David's older brother, who asked if he could join David's band. David said yes, but only on a temporary basis. It's hard for me to even imagine what it must be like to hear it for the first time. So it's more just things like Dad had an amateur pilot licence to, to take this man up with a video camera up in the plane and all the shots that end up in the video of the clouds and the aerial shots. Just getting those done, because it's all in the family, have memories like that. I have associations with the song. At the time, because I was present with that song from a demo to a finished recording, there's a, so much that I love about it. I love the ethereal Jill's keyboard opening, which brings that first image 
of the road, mirages, and then how Marty brings drama and all these punctuated drumming. I just love the how it's very typical triffids where all these parts create a whole, the atmosphere, and sitting on top of that is David's story. It's rare that you'll be transported by your own thing into an emotional space. So just the sound of it, the way that Dave sings it, the kind of resignation in his voice, the sad but happy. What's the word when someone is resigned to their fate and they don't know what's going to happen? Probably the Germans have a word for it. It all comes together with this music that really could have been playing for months and yet there's just three and a half minute bit where the singer drops in because the music's in the background going all the time and that is pulled from the universe and gets put onto the record. So that, that's what I like about the music of the song is that it's continuous. It's just there. So it starts as if it's always been there and it ends like it's going to keep going. But the singer drops in and gives you this mother load of feeling and sensation and then leaves. That was Sally Collins, the Triffids manager, and Alzie MacDonald from the Triffids, who was also David's best friend from childhood. Here's Jill Burt from the Triffids. The song was brilliant, but it, there was a lot of hard work that went behind getting that song to live up to the vision and to actually fulfil itself. So I find it hard to, dis- to distance myself from those mechanics of the song uh, as opposed to the, the sense of loss or separation, the simple awe and wonder of you know, the, the Australian landscape, which I suspect this song was less about, but certainly was the, the vehicle for getting the atmospherics. Like, we'd have a go at it and then we'd let it slip, but it was never quite achieving what it wanted to do. I certainly have memories of Dave coming in and with his hands, pitter-patter-patter on his thighs, trying to demonstrate his idea for the rhythm of it. So it was worked at to get the right feel, the pulsing, the moving on. He couldn't quite pin things down. They just sort of float off. He was a keen observer and with a skill to be able to write it, to evoke feelings that take you beyond. And I suppose that's what the music was doing too. It was, you know, taking you beyond what you already know. Along with narrative ambiguity, David was looking for sounds that were new. Here's Alzie. Dave would have notes about what effect he wanted a song to have, both sound-wise and how it would complement the lyrics that he was singing. So not just Wide Open Road, but all these other songs too, saying something like, no definite drums or continuous bass, a wash of keyboard, don't know what yet, but it's got to sound something like air coming through a window. The rhythm track's got to sound like you've been driving for four hours on an Australian road somewhere. What? He couldn't quite describe how you would do it. Yeah, it's like metaphor. Um, it's almost like poetry, yeah. what he's writing. Yeah, yeah. Bass guitar to sound like a really bad headache. And he wouldn't necessarily show everybody the notes. Some of them they were discovered after his death. Some things, the band was involved. The notebook would be out and you'd go, look, we can't just have rock guitar riffs here. It's got to be guitar that's hinting at some uncertainty with wide open road it was uh, drums to be continuous a rolling thing not real unrelenting 
getting the sun and the blue sky and the blinding light to have a, an equivalent audio representation somehow. It sounds like a really simple song, but it's actually quite difficult to play and you can easily lose track of where you are. I've got a production note here where he just lists a whole lot of things that he thinks should be on the song. This is pre-recording it. He says, swishing drum machine, similar to steam train, delicate but insistent, real snare rolls, Motown e-bass, lush keyboard, several layers, clean fenderish electric guitar. That's, all that stuff is actually there. So he had a really strong idea in his mind of how the song was going to sound before we even went in and recorded it. That was Graham Lee. Here's Gilbert. By the time we got to the studio, he would know the songs intimately. It was to create a certain effect or atmosphere or emotion in much the same way as someone might say a sentence and then sigh at the end of the sentence. That sigh at the end of the sentence changes the sentence. There's a photo of David McComb as a kid, writing in a notebook, blonde and fresh-faced, open and curious. He has a small scarf tied around his neck. In the Bury Me Deep in Love video clip decades later, he still has the knotted scarf. Looking down into the camera as if he could reach out and take your hand, it seems that from the very beginning, David had a clear sense of style, what he wanted to do, and the direction to take. Here's Alzi, who met him in kindy. Probably my earliest ever memory of Dave, actually, was both of us being naughty and being sent out and having to sit in opposite ends of the garden for a timeout session. I don't know what we were getting up to, but we were <laughs> laughing, laughing a lot. And it was actually something that was a little bit subversive, come to think of it. <laughs> yeah, so that's how far we go back. We must have been little shits occasionally. When we got together and we got wound up in each other's jokes or absurdist antics, I, I didn't have a religious upbringing at all. But the McCombs had a kind of secular religious upbringing. So... If I stayed there on Sunday mornings, that would involve having to go to church. And so it's like 1969. And in Netherlands is a conservative, bourgeois, quite wealthy neighbourhood. It's where I grew up. The atmosphere in church would have been a carryover from another colonial time. Pious women in frocks and hats, old style kind of stuff. And the men were dressed up in their tweed and a tie, all very curious to me, more familiar to Dave. And then at some point in the service, all the kids would have to go off down into another area to do Sunday school. And there would be almost an audible groan from some of the kids. <laughs> I, I was in company, so I had to be polite. But Dave would go, oh, do we have to type of thing? Anyway, off we go. And there was this young uh, woman and she's doing a tape recording and she wants to record all of the kids. It comes round to Dave's turn and Dave and I are already looking at each other with a kind of smirk on our face and I know he's going to do something. The woman says, and what about you, David? Uh, what's your favourite part of the Bible? And he just goes, Mary's a bitch. 
<laughs> That's all he says. And then there's a there's a, a pregnant pause, and then he and I just cacking ourselves. She's speechless. What could she do? I don't think she even bothered asking me the next question. <laughs> but even then, I could tell that he had definitely overstepped the line, and he did something that I probably wouldn't have had the guts to do. So we're like seven. That was a pivotal moment when I knew that either singularly or collectively, we had a certain view of the world. Speaking his mind when he had to, from a very early age, not a problem for him, uh, which was a blessing and a curse, really. You need to deal with the fact yeah. that everyone in that room might be horrified and then not care. <laughs> yes. Well, we did have an audience because the way it was done was you go around us sitting down in a circle, so everyone had their turn. And... I can't remember the reaction of the other kids, just us. And I can't even remember whether it was about the Virgin Mary or Mary Magdalene. That's a detail <laughs> that will escape me for the rest of my life. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite so an important I think detail. It was, at the time, it made me realise what the tone was, which was some a kind of rigour that we would apply to our favourite subjects and then occasionally unleash something to someone in authority. Alzie and David would spend weekends down in the basement at Dave's house, overlooking the river in Perth, a house called The Cliff. They would write stories together, make comics and work on songs. They formed a band called Dalzy and shared an interest in all kinds of music, including punk. Here's David McComb from an earlier interview. By the time I was about 13 or 14, I was in a very small group of friends who were fiercely committed to like the Velvet Underground. When punk rock came along, I mean, it was pretty obvious that was more or less in the same line of thinking, although I never personally went for the British sort of punk rock. I always went for the New York variation, which was the Richard Hell and the Voidoids and television, and then later on Lydia Lunch and Suicide. When we were... 14, 15, around about the same time, we were just making tapes of ourselves making noises. And also we did a lot of things with tape recorders and it was bits of sort of music concrete and as we liked bits of craft work and Eno and stuff that we'd heard. But generally it was it's quite exciting to hear the incompetence of music like Richard Hell, say, or The Heartbreakers, because that then gave you the inspiration that even though you were incompetent, that didn't make you any less worthwhile. In fact, it made you a lot more worthwhile than, say, Genesis. I remember finding his school diary from 1978, and on one page it's just written, Paddy Lou Iggy. Referencing the CBGB scene. But it's just just written apropos of nothing, but it's just like what's obsessing him at the time. That was Rob McComb. Phil Kukulis was another school friend of Alzi and Dave's. I went to kindy with Alzi, and Dave was a friend of Alzi's, so I regarded Dave a little bit as a rival to Alzi's attention and friendship. Their idea of a good time was that Dave had an old acoustic guitar. He only played the bottom two strings. He didn't really know how to play. And Alzi had some wooden spoons and pillows off the lounge. And they would make up satirical songs, making fun of Perth and Perth personalities and friends, me. I was often the subject of their songs or you were? Uh, other friends. I was, yeah, yeah. They were, <laughs> How did they, they make were, fun they of were you? Ruthless. Some characteristic they found amusing, but they were quite vicious and very funny in their own ways. And, you know, so this was impenetrable 
for me, I felt kind of the third wheel. I ended up going to the same school as Dave. And Dave had been there since grade one. And so I joined him in grade seven. And this is like an elite Perth private school. It's a kind of Lord of the Flies, very savage, <laughs> fights most every other day. Uh, a lot of blood spilt on the playground and in the quadrangle. And the children are very rich, very privileged Perth uh, society. There was a small group of us who were kind of arty, farty, known as the Poofters. I don't know how many of us were actually gay, but they were the times. And we got ourselves through that together. Not to say that it was really unpleasant. In fact, Dave's nickname at school was Cobber, our friend, because he had a way of managing to being friends with all sorts of people. In grade seven, we were asked to write by our, our teacher a quality about ourselves that we would like to change. And I wrote that I would like to be less brownier because I had been teased for the colour of my skin at this new school. Well, these elite Anglo-whiteys, I don't know how many Greek people they'd seen before. I was copying it for that. So I'd written this. And so the teacher read it out and I'm in tears. And at the end he says, so what do we call this? And Dave, who I know because he's a friend of ours, he's, and he's about the only person I know in the class. So I'm clinging to him. Dave says, that's called racial prejudice. And that's the first time I've ever heard that phrase. And he goes on to explain what it means. And that's the first time also that I see the relationship that Dave has with the teachers, which is not equal because he's a little kid at this stage, but he is on a different plane to the other kids in the class in terms of his development and his awareness. And that goes on all the way through school. So he becomes my best buddy at that point of, God, someone understands me and understands what I'm going through. So that's, he's got this group called Dowsy, Dave and Alzi, and I start, you know, joining in. So we're coming to school each day and um, think of a few different names. I think we're called Logic for a day. And I'm a science fiction fan. So I think I must have been reading The Chrysalids or Day of the Triffids. I'm home and I, I thought, oh, The Triffids, that would be a good name. So I, I know I'm going to have to sell it to Dave. So I do all this different fonts and these different writing about how it could look. And I take it to school the next day and he goes, oh, yeah, that's good. Let's be The Triffids. Dave had a voracious appetite for words won prizes for literature and divinity studies at school, and went on to study English and creative writing at WAIT, or WA Institute of Technology. He even had the formidable novelist Elizabeth Jolly as a teacher. His songs and poetry show a fierce love of language and careful crafting, a creative drive to turn conventions on their head. Name a musical or literary genre, and it's likely embedded deep or played with lightly, even mashed up into the same song. Dave was a very early riser, so if I was sleeping the night and were staying in his room, when I woke up, Dave would already be in bed reading a book. So let's say it's summertime and the light's coming into the room and he would just be reading it while I was still slumbering. It was just something that he was used to doing and he enjoyed doing. Yeah. And he'd been doing it since he was a kid, like really young. Because yeah. I knew him since as far back as I can remember. He returned to the same ideas and turned them over in different ways, worrying at the knots, the possibilities and heartbreak of a New Year's kiss, the taste of salt on the skin on a hot day, long-distance desire, fidelity and betrayal, and devotion to love as a sacred thing. Yeah, we're, we're very much uh, uh, guilty of writing about unrequited love. 
that's the perennial topic of pop music too and I acknowledge it's a cliche and I still would be guilty of keeping writing about it some things are cliches sometimes because they're worth writing about and people will always go on keeping writing about them because they're the most important things you said you've been reading the poems yeah you know, I'm just browsing through myself and so many of those the ones about love etc so many of those are more autobiographical than the songs. Nature's warning, I'm driving in mist north of England. The engine is coughing and missing my belated and her substitute for me lie on a double bed somewhere kissing. Here's one of David's poems from the book Beautiful Waste. I dream of him reading it in his soft, sexy, sibilant sounds. But I search and there's no trace of him speaking his poems aloud. Prayerful one, we're long apart now. We'll make happiness out of things other than each other's skin. You grow sweeter in the elongating days of our separation. The evening light is wan, thin, but your taste still sweetens my tongue when I lick the corners of my mouth. You are an Alice band in streams of yellow hair flowing south. Is it still there? Should I comb out the knots, rub tension from your bare shoulders? Dear friend, I wish you whole rooms of happiness. I wish you the love you never had years past. You always deserved more, but modestly declined to ask. Find warmth in the mornings without me. You're closer than ever to me now. You've begun to live without me. Live a thousand new lives without me. Rejoice in each new kiss of sour grass upon calf, sting of anemone upon finger, feel a whole man when there's only half. Just know, each time your body rustles chilled sheets, each time AM radio wakes you before dawn to a shrill white whine of horror, I'm there, beside you in full ripe flesh. Beside you for whatever reason you think best, for flesh, spirit or for jest. This prayer hums from my lips, not for any god or godlessness, but only for you for your breathing's sake, to give you hope when in dark you shake. Oh, you know all the reasons. My sentimentality's transparent. Our lovelorn doggerel won't bring down the government. Just give me a slight curve of your lips to indicate a smile. That's enough. I'm kindling for you, your fuel. Even though the cold distance yawns, let me subtract chill from your fingers Let me burn for you a while. Dave's songs and poems sometimes read with the beat of crime fiction, the opening lines drawing you in immediately. Why did she jump off the bridge? Why is he trapped under glass? He plays with the listener, unreliable as narrator, switching points of view. My favourite thing is his ability to wrench many meanings from only a few words. The term unmade love keeps me pondering. The many ways he can fall... I'm setting you free. How can a song about release incorporate its very opposite and the miraculous way that the music itself can cocoon his words or become the shape of them, the swirling flock in the seabirds, the galloping hooves of the red pony? Here's Sally Collins and Phil Kakoulis. He could make me cry. His words, his writing, that is very rare. Dave's music, Dave's lyrics, and then the band's amplification of the realisation of those lyrics really could drag deep emotion from you. 
there's so much that people could relate to. The lost love element, a lot of imagery, especially the dark and, and brooding loneliness. These days talk about the genius of David McComb and I appreciate that. What I appreciate more is the amount of work and dedication he had to the art and craft. I really love that about Leonard Cohen too. He makes no secret of how hard he has to work on a lyric, how many billion drafts he does, and still he would have considered it unfinished. Yeah. Um, I, I find that heartening as a writer. Dave was also big on this. You don't want it to feel laboured over. The work itself mustn't look as if you worked hard on it, and he would even sometimes leave a little bit of it slightly unfinished if we were working on a song, like... There'd be the lazy line, and he'd say, no, we'll leave it like that because then it doesn't look like it's been worked over too much. Or he would repeat a line that was in another song for a similar reason, Mm. just to give it that appearance of off-the-cuffness. So you would work very hard, like all creative people do, to make it look effortless. Mm. He was consumed by songwriting. He was devoted. Mm. Devoted. And the other thing he used to say was a Bowie quote, the worst trick God can play on you is to make you an artist, but a mediocre artist. And I think he was terrified of that, of laying his life on the line and being merely mediocre. So I think he works very hard to be exceptional. Even in music, the preferred idea is that it all just comes easily and naturally and you should be out carousing on the weekends, not home, blackening pages. Paper sheets. Paper sheets will keep me warm in winter nights that lie ahead. Ink will be both food and drink, cloth binding for my parchment bed. from Perth, an ambitious band and songwriter had no option but to be on the move. In many of the Triffids clips, the emphasis is on momentum. The touring van with each band member at the wheel in Red Pony, the convertible in Goodbye Little Boy with Jill glammed up and David reading a book on girl supergroups, the train in Raining Pleasure, WA to Melbourne, to Sydney, to the UK, to Belgium. In the late 70s and the 80s, you had so many obstacles to actually getting to where you think you wanted to be, which was being talked about in the Melody Maker or New Musical Express. It just seemed so far-fetched that you couldn't seriously put any kind of career plan in place. It's just inconceivable that you, in the space of a few weeks or months, would be playing on a stage in London or New York um, and coming from WA to start that first stage. So you do things bit by bit. We've made all of these cassettes, put out another record, pay for it yourself. We're playing around town. We've done it all now. Where do we go? And you're 20. Everything's only three to six months in advance because you don't know what's going to happen. And that's part of the joy of it. The, you don't necessarily realize at the time, but it's the freedom. You don't have the, the burden of expectation or or other people hemming you in. There was no manifesto or career ambitions etched in stone that we had to follow in any kind of rock mythology sense. That was Alzi. Here's Martin Casey. 
up to that point, I'd never actually been anywhere. I'd been living in Perth pretty much my whole life until then. You know, got to go to Melbourne and then got to go to Sydney and then got to go to back to England and go to Europe. Blow up planes. Great fun. But looking back on it, I think it was having the opportunity to travel. Profound effect on the band. Dave always said it. He found it easier to write about Australia while while you weren't living there than it was when you're actually living here. It's the people that you miss. It's not the place that much. Maybe the weather (laughs) sometimes. Charlie Watts said it was like two years of playing music and ten years of sitting in airports and hotel lobbies. Did the Triffids feel like family to you when you were travelling? Oh, they still do. They still are. Jill and Alzi live around the corner from me. What set the Triffids apart from early on was their live performance. The first band Dave saw on arriving in Sydney was the birthday party. It changed how he approached being on stage. Each time the band returned to Perth, their development was obvious. Here's Greg Deer, a Perth friend and musician. They were absolutely in their element. They were like different people on stage, especially Dave, even though he was almost self-effacing, but just a huge presence, witty banter between songs, but sometimes just looked like he was about to have a panic attack. He was so nervous or shy, and at other times, you could tell that this was a band that would grow into big venues and festivals. It was perfect balance between we're just up here having bit of fun and this is the most serious thing that anyone could be doing anywhere in the world. The role of the audience was to take the music seriously and be there to listen to the music, not just what are we going to do tonight. I don't think people talk enough about how good the Triffids were as a live band. They were very powerful. They had their arrangements, their dynamics as a band with the addition of the pedal steel and the keys and everything. And it just put them in a slightly different sound and league, I thought, at the time. Nick Cave was a bit of a one-trick pony compared to Dave and the arrangements they were doing. I felt like he was working and developing an on-stage persona and that was both necessary to protect himself in a way and also to perform that cathartic act with the audience and lead them. What was interesting is his most passionate fans were always other guys and male friends and they would kind of passionately compete for his attention and obviously incredibly admire him, but also they could really, you know, give him a backlash if they felt he didn't live up to their creative vision or their personal demands or their friendship. So there was like this kind of intense swirl of male emotions in the court around him (laughs) in the social setting, which stemmed from the fact that he was an interesting and fascinating charismatic person. When Dave was facing outwards from the stage to the crowd, he would feel like at times he was quite possessed And he didn't have that thing that a lot of warm and fuzzy performers have. You know how people say, oh, I felt like Bono looked right in my eyes. Dave didn't do that. He often had this thing where he would point his chin skyward and he would look up as if he was in church and praying. (laughs) And this would connect him, but also disconnect him. 
at times, and, and that was often in very intense songs like Lonely Stretch. And other times he would look right down the barrel of the mic and wave his arms and he would look like he's raving. But what I remember most was the, the, the little in jokes and looks that passed between the band members at the Enmore Theatre Dave started to do animal figures with his hands, creating shadow puppets on the wall. And Dave looked to the wall and he could see that because of the way the light, the thick spot was um, casting a shadow, he looked at it and it was almost as if he had uh, become a little boy (laughs) and got inspired. That was Megan Simpson-Huberman, Aaron Curran, and Peter Galvin. But even as the Triffids gained a large following in the UK and Europe, including being on the cover of NME magazine in 1985, being away from his girlfriends, family and friends for long stretches of time began to take a toll on David and the rest of the band too. It was the tension between wanting success as a creative artist and wanting stability in affairs of the heart. And the only bits of touring that Dave liked were having a day off and going to art galleries and bookshops. Touring was always difficult for Dave, like being fawned over by people. He wasn't a natural rock star who enjoyed all the attention, although it's, it's funny. On stage, he was a star, but he didn't carry that over into his personal life at all. Often we'd finish the show and it was a really great show and everybody wanted to go out and the promoter was going to take us out to a wonderful restaurant and Dave would just disappear. Go up to his room and probably drink and write in his notebooks and maybe figure out if if he could afford to make a ridiculously expensive phone call to somebody back home. David's tour diary gives a by turns hilarious and depressing account of the Triffids' 1989 European tour. Here's an excerpt. Now I will instruct you in the gentle art of not paying for 20-minute phone calls to Australia. 1. Have a nice cup of coffee in the restaurant. Relax. Shoot the breeze and compare pole axes with fellow travellers. Attempt to piece together what happened the night before. 2. When it is almost bang on time to go, return to your room. 3. Dial Australia. This morning I rang Joe. It was 6.15 on a cool Perth Sunday evening. At your leisure. 4. With the room key firmly still in your pocket, walk good-naturedly, even absent-mindedly, through the foyer, past the reception, out the front door of the hotel, yawning and scratching pleasantly, and climb into the van. 5. Pray in painful, sweating anxiety that the concierge is not at this moment sprinting towards the van. 6. Relax only when the hotel is out of sight. This morning I was walking through the foyer when someone ran up to me shouting, Sir! Sir! in an agitated Danish accent. Oh shit! It was a hotel employee and she was pathetically waving a bill in my face. Sir, you forgot to pay! My heart dipped. For your coffee! Why, so I had. I smiled, paid and left. Here's Jill Burt. I found Dave's emotional journey very difficult. The gloom and doom that surrounded him. We'd go hop into a van and he'd throw himself into the corner and almost shoulders shrug, droop. His mood and he'd be brow down. It was infectious. If he's in one of those moods at 
rehearsals. He's often in a state like that in the later years. You were aware that you weren't quite finding the feel that he was perhaps wanting. It would just cause me to close right up. You're not performing the way that you would want to because you're under the influence of someone else's state of mind. It was like you were taken in against your will. He sucked it and pulled you in and it was all engrossing. He was a gentle, gentle soul, really. You can sort of understand how it, that mood, in a way, might have been contributing to the very things that were making the mood get worse. Um, I'm not sure that the moods were always necessarily the girlfriends. I don't know, maybe they were, but maybe they were the lack of speed with which he wanted things to happen. The fact that we have so much interest and getting such good reviews and we couldn't get a record deal. <laughs> he was ambitious. He wanted to write the perfect pop song and wanted for us to, 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 to be successful in America too. Things weren't happening fast enough or, or things were out of control. So that must have been hugely disappointing and frustrating because it looked like things were going to fall into place. But look, in amongst all of that, we can hop in the van and drive on to the next gig. This is in touring Europe. The hilarity, he could hop in and just in an instant make this joke about the whole situation. So insightful but so funny and just have us in stitches. My first memories of the Triffords are not of David but of Jill in the video clips. The way she dressed, her voice. I felt like she was one of my friends, that I could head up the street to hang out with her. This was unusual in the era of Madonna. She stood out. My first boyfriend when I was 14 told me about his favourite band, the Triffids. He'd write me long letters of love and make me cut up collage birthday cards where he'd practice fonts like the scrawl of the Triffids. Raining pleasure. I just loved it. It was so atypical for its time. He was a song that was just fragile and intimate and was being sung by this woman, Jill Burt. Her voice was really tenderly weak and I've been a little bit in love with her ever since then. I knew there was a, a cachet around this group. They were different. They weren't part of that 3XY world that I'd grown up on. And I've still got my cassette of Love in Bright Landscapes. And one of the things that I enjoy the most about listening to their albums it was when suddenly you hear one of Jill's tracks because they're always a sort of awkward delight. For instance, Tarot Up Bridge. Jill is there talking about being effectively a suburban mum driving off the end of a bridge, and it catches your breath. And I was really delighted to catch her solo show in Sydney, and it's possible that I spent that entire show staring lovingly at Jill Burt, and Kirsten, yes, one of the reasons I was attracted to you in the 80s was that you looked and felt a lot like Jill Burt, I have to admit. But it was only finally in my early 40s that I actually had the courage to speak with Jill as well at this gig. And I asked her to sign the CD that I'd just bought. And she wrote on the back of it in scrawly, somewhat erratic writing, Cheers, Jill Burt, and put a little X there so I can say that I've had a kiss from Jill Burt. I thought the songs that David was writing 
they seemed more uh, developed, more layered, particularly when it came to persona. Like he would use Jill and Jill's voice as almost like a different character in his songs. And sometimes it was tricky. Is Jill singing as a man? Are there two characters in this song or three, perhaps? How many voices and perspectives are there in this song? When you, I'm talking about Tender as the Night and Stolen Property, you've got different voices coming through. And I loved that David, with Jill, was able to do this kind of mysterious character development in their stories of their songs. That was Peter Hobbins and Aaron Curran. The 1989 tours would be their last as the Triffids. On returning to Australia, they eventually went their separate ways, Alzie and Jill staying in Perth to study and have kids, Graham and Rob in Melbourne, Martin to join up with Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, and Dave from Perth to London to Melbourne to pursue a solo career in the 1990s. Here's Nicole Jenkins, who became a friend of Dave's in Perth after the band stopped touring. Gregory was having an operation and Gregory and I were falling in love and it was all very cutesy and I was actually lying on the bed next to him in the hospital, which I'm a bit horrified by. The nurses let me. And I was wearing my favourite 50s dress and stilettos and seam stockings and the whole shebang, which is how I dressed then. And Greg said that Dave was coming to visit him. And I could feel his approach coming through the hospital because people started to get really excited. And you could feel the rumbles as he came through the corridors. And it, it was such a strange thing. And then suddenly he swept into the room and gave Greg a big hug and a kiss. He was larger than life. His presence was very warm and he drew people to him. I haven't met many people like that. And we started spending a lot of time together with, with him. On Saturday nights, we'd go up to his place at the granny flat and we'd sit around the table in a small group of us and we'd just drink red wine. My house then, as is now, was full of old furniture. I love old things. And he would get quite misty-eyed. Gregory and I were living this cutesy, very homey, homemade cakes and domestic, very domestic. And he really admired that. He said that he was hoping that he could meet somebody and he'd just broken up with his partner at this point. And he kind of envied that stability and that romantic thing that we have. Mm. While I envied the travel and the people that he worked with. But recognition for the band back in WA didn't always come in the form that you'd expect. We all dressed up to go to the Whammy Awards. And as we trooped in, all the waiters were all lined up by the door. You know when you see these period dramas, Downton Abbey, where they line up the servants? For the, for the family to come home and greet them. It's such a strange, contrived way of doing it, but that's what they did. We walked past and they're all wearing their little cutesy uniforms with the aprons and the little caps in their hair. And because I've done a lot of waitressing, I always pay attention to these people and I sort of smiled at them as I walked past. And then I saw Jill and I went over and I said, Jill! And she was like, don't say anything. She was waiting on our table and serving us our food. Then when it came to the big award of the night, the, the major international band, and the Triffids won. And there's this big long silence because we don't know if any of the Triffids are there or not. We've only seen Jill. And nobody comes up on stage to accept the award. And so she rushes on stage in her little waitress outfit 
with her little cap and everything and apron. It's so surreal because behind her, they're playing Goodbye Little Boy, the song that she sings from Black Swan, where she's looking all Delma and Louise with sunglasses, glamorous, with a scarf. She's in a car driving down a a highway looking very much like a movie star. And here's the real Jill. This is the, the shocking reality of what it's like to be a big, successful musician in Perth. And Jill, you know, gave a bit of a speech. And then she was like, I'm sorry, I have to get back to my work. And she rushes off and she starts clearing the tables from people's meals. So I said to Alzi, I'm going off. I've got this shift on. You don't know what they're going to put you on until you get to the to work and sometimes it's like a little wedding or a small event but it could be in the showroom which was great because I got to see some older performers perform there like you know Lou Roll so off I went to work I didn't know quite what to do because I thought it would be equally weird if I came out after the awards in my waitress uniform to serve people and they're going didn't you just win an award (laughs) if someone happened to recognize me and in the end I wanted to see so I stood beside where the drinks and the food was coming from underneath the venue and waited near the side where the doors were and couldn't believe it that we won so I handed my silver tray to the young man that was standing next to me and much to his shock and surprise walked up on stage and took the award (laughs) but Everyone in the band thinks it's hilarious and loves it, the fact that that's what happened. Everyone I speak to talks about Dave's letters over the years. The postcards he wrote. He never missed a birthday. He made mixtapes that he sent around the world. And yes, at one stage we were going out and they, he was in Melbourne for a number of months. Yes, we were riding back and forth. I was 19 and hanging on the post. <laughs> and he'd oh, be the yes. same, he'd be, he'd be writing, I, I didn't get a letter from you today. So that was a great romantic experience. But yes, he loved to write. It was a way of uh, connecting and maintaining relationships. We wrote a lot about writing and art and film and exchanging poems, handwriting out a poem that we'd read and sending it to the other was a great pleasure that we had. You would always get a Christmas card, long letters from London or from Melbourne. We used to exchange cassettes all the time and CDs and records. He'd just mail me something and I'd mail him something. I worked in record shops, so that was, you know, quite an easy thing for me to do. Or I would get a postcard from London saying, Dear Pat, please send a copy of the reels Quasimodo's Dream to someone in Stuttgart. That was Megan Simpson-Huberman and Pat Monaghan. In Warren Ellis's book Nina Simone's Gum, he talks of receiving a postcard from David with a large red sticker in the shape of a heart. It was after David's heart transplant operation. Warren says he kept that postcard in every suitcase he ever took on tour. Here's Will Akers. I remember I was in jail when he uh, uh, sent a letter saying that he was going to have a heart transplant. 
and uh, it was the first letter I'd ever received that wasn't handwritten. You know, and he's got oh. this gorgeous handwriting. You know, mm. uh, and all these ounce of medical nouns jumping off the page. And Davey was sort of joking about it the way he does. And I couldn't phone him for a couple of months at least. So I could get out of jail. Um, They're they're brutal. (laughs) That's the pain of being inside these places. It's, It's that, you know. You can't speak to your mother who's dying, that kind of thing, which will make any person break, you know. Mm. He he wrote a kind of form letter and then wrote to you because he realised he had to tell the same story to a whole bunch of people over and over again. From the early 90s, life becomes more of a struggle for David, a solo career that's hard to get off the ground, alcohol dependency bouts of rehab, pain and drug use, a congenital heart condition, a heart transplant and medical complications. Here's Bled and Butcher. After David's heart transplant in um, 1996, I flew to Melbourne after a couple of months to encourage him and see how he was getting on. And I stayed with him and Joe at, at their house. I was worried after that visit. He was himself. It was the same person. Uh, we were joking about writing a country song called How Can I Love You With Someone Else's Heart. That was a very Dave joke. Um, but he had become resentful about the way that he was being treated by the medical fraternity. He'd had a laparotomy. They cut his stomach open about three or four months after the heart transplant because they thought that he had a blocked intestine whereas they had misprescribed his medication and he'd had a toxic reaction to the medication. And so his resentment was caused not by their mistake, but that they doubled down on the mistake and they didn't sew him up properly so that he ended up with a huge protuberant hernia that was the size of a football in his stomach. Uh, And that doctor's space out operations, especially invasive operations like that. And he was living with that when I was in Melbourne visiting him. So he wasn't in a good frame of mind. And was he in an incredible amount of pain because of that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was another thing. He had pinched vertebrae in his spine, uh, which had been there at that stage for nine years. They eventually did the x-rays and realised that the nerve of his spinal cord was pinched between two vertebrae and he was in an incredible amount of pain. So did he actually want to have a heart transplant? That question depends on the time you ask. Mm. In the months before, when he was on the waiting list, he was actually perfectly happy because there's an implant that you have where you can self-medicate and he was very happy with self-medicating because it meant that he, he um, wasn't in pain. But as David would have admitted, that's not a permanent solution. Whereas a, a heart transplant, it'll extend your life for 
up to seven years, which is a more permanent and satisfactory solution than being stoned all day. So at the point when the operation was conducted, he didn't want to have it, but he knew that that was the be- his best chance. But things didn't go well. I think that the last five years of his life probably were, were pretty painful. And he did deteriorate quite quickly. But it's clear from the songs he wrote at this time, and even his performances on stage, that his mind was sharp and creative vision powerful. He was a delightful human being. And he was the same after the heart transplant. His voice had a, an immense amount of power. And he retained all of that. He kept doing it because... I I don't know if it's so much the love of performing as that was the most effective way of championing his own songs. Now, it's possible that people would cover songs because they're written by him, but in the mid-90s, there was very little chance of that, and he'd had a very dispiriting couple of years trying to get a solo career off the ground in London. He was completely let down by Island Records. They encouraged him to make a solo record without the band and then didn't support him. Why didn't they support him? In a word, Nirvana. You know, times changed. Akers was an early member of the Triffids and David's close friend all the way through. He moved from Perth to live in Melbourne and became part of co-star David's last band. The album title Love of Will can be read in many ways. A testament to willpower, David's love for his friend, or Will's love in return. Will was with him when he died and wanted to share his experience here, a burden he's had to carry for a long time. Please note that the next section might be distressing for some listeners. When I got to Melbourne and I saw him coming across the rooms along with the wall and obviously in great pain. So I walked into his room and I said, uh, what's going on, David? What's wrong? And he said, I'm all right like that, you know, I was getting upset, you know, and uh, I said, you're nothing like all right now, and since when did you start telling me lies, you know, I'm the one person that you don't ever have to lie to, you know, Mm. tell me that's what's going on, so he did, and this is how he put it, he said, I woke up in the middle of the night with my chest filling with fluid, and I started packing a bag for the hospital mm. after the operation. So he needed to go back into the hospital? Only because they'd fucked up. When you were, you know, living with him, what was his general frame of mind? Was he still writing songs? Yeah, oh, gotcha. He was writing songs. He was writing good songs. He was at the peak of his powers. The trouble is very few people visited him at the end and David had gone into town and I hadn't gone with him 
He's had a car accident, but that was okay. A couple of days afterwards, we were rehearsing songs, and he got up. He'd had some heroin, not very much, before he went to bed. And when he woke up, he was good, he was happy. Anyway, he was in bed all day. He'd been hit in the chest, you know, sort of abdomen with a, you know, sort of, with a steering wheel, so he was going to be sore there. And all day he was there and I kept going forward, back and forth. You all right, Dad? Yeah. And then he called me and he said, I can't see. And I started, fuck, I started panicking then, you know. And, um, and I called a friend who was all awful there. I said, find the ambulance, you know. Because as long as he was in, in control of his senses, I wasn't too concerned. But as soon as he wasn't, I, I was worried, you know. And I went and sat with him. And I said, what, what is it, Dave? What? And he started talking a bit of gibberish. And I said, I'm really worried. And then he looked at me and he said, oh, it's Will. He just, his eyesight must have just got, come back perhaps, you know. And I said, of course it's Will. And he said, I knew he'd be here. I said, of course I'm here, I'm always here. And within a minute or so, he just slipped off onto the floor. And, and it was, he was dead before he hit the floor, I feel like, you know. He was sitting or? He was, uh, he was sitting up in, uh, in bed, you know. David's death was a shock to many. And there is a sense that even 23 years later, things are raw, feel unfinished. This year he would have turned 60. And there are many projects celebrating his life and work, including a new film, Loving Bright Landscapes, and Truckload of Sky, an album and live tour of previously unreleased songs. He told me he thought shortly before he died that he had been forgotten, that you know, at this point, none of their CDs were in print. None of their records were in print. Love of Will had kind of disappeared. He really thought he'd been forgotten. So I don't know how Dave would like to have been remembered. I just think he would be happy to have been remembered. He would have been impressed that so many young people kind of enjoyed what he did. I think that would have meant a great deal to him. He would have liked more women singing his songs. We spoke about that quite often, that he wanted women to be performing either Triffitt's songs or his own songs. Dave was a huge fan of the whole 60s brill-building girl group sound all those recordings by the Shangri-Las, the Shirelles, huge Ronettes fan, huge Goffin and King fan, big fan of Patti Smith, 
and Carly Minogue and Madonna. He was thrilled when Carly Minogue, I think he was still alive when Carly did Bury Me Deep in Love. But that kind of thing meant a lot to him. We've got so little time And we have so many pains And these days it's frightening My God, how swiftly love wanes Soon it will be dawn Dogs and children in the street All these early birds, how could they imagine the night belongs to you and to me? I wanna conquer you. I wanna conquer you. I want to conquer you. I want to. I want to. I want to conquer you. That was Angie Hart's version of David's song, I Want to Conquer You. For Angie, he was a guiding light. Linda Geber was our manager and she also looked after the Black Eyed Seasons and she used to hold these barbecues at her house just feeding the poor musicians. (laughs) 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 We'd all go and sit in her backyard and Dave would be there sometimes and he made me a few mixtapes because we shared a love of hip-hop, which was pretty hilarious. He made me a great LL Cool J mixtape and (laughs) uh, introduced me to Dr. Dre, which I wasn't ready for yet. (laughs) (laughs) So I would have been about 19 and he was one of those people that made time for for other people. He's a great mentor if you're coming up through the ranks and just making you feel like what you had to say was valued. Just really put that put that light on you and when you sat down to talk with him which was really valuable at the time for me everyone was older than me and I really felt like he respected me which was a great feeling at that time in my life. For Rob Snarsky from the Black Eyed Susans he helped him find his voice. Rob performs David's songs on the truckload of Sky album and tour. I find it quite difficult to be honest I find it a little overwhelming Um, at times it can be quite draining but we all plough through it's not easy memories tend to flood back and you can find yourself in a, in a bit of a puddle if you're not careful and I just have to remind myself that we're here to celebrate Dave and his songwriting craft and you know it's supposed to be joyful he wasn't one to just sing the song you had to tell the tale within the song you had to deliver the words very important. He really stretched my singing capabilities. I was really kind of reticent as a singer. I was, you know, quite shy as a person. And Dave essentially pushed me in front of the spotlight, in front of the microphone, and encouraged me to do it. And it wasn't about melodic rhythms being in pitch or in tune mattered as much as the genuine delivery 
of the lyric to draw you in. For Jonathan Alley, director of the film Loving Bright Landscapes, and Sally Collins, it is about devotion. It was a thought that David put in one of those letters to John, and that's why we've used the actual physical ink of the letter that he actually wrote that. Yeah. Devoted to the idea of devotion and love of being in love. It speaks to an overt romanticism that is strongly through the work. From beginning to end, it's about being devoted to a person and faith and fidelity. There's that song, Tender is the Night, The Long Fidelity, which goes back to that idea of the long-distance relationship. Where you are, it will just be getting light. Tender is the Night. That makes me cry every time because I think of Dave with that song. But I love um, Blinded by the Hour. Save What You Can has a particular resonance with me. And, yeah, I get a lump in my throat like right now, even saying the title. I asked the Triffids how they think David would like to be remembered. Hmm. It's an interesting question. Probably above everything else, a good writer, I'd say. I don't, I don't know if it would be doing this for posterity. I, I certainly rightly it was driven, but I don't think that was the main reason. I think you just love doing it, you know? Yeah. It's like the best thing to be able to um, make a living out of doing what you love doing. It's very seductive. I think he'd like to be remembered as a great writer, not just a singer-songwriter, but either way, this is the amazing thing about his work is it'll hopefully outlive all, us all so he'll be remembered long after we're gone he's done such great songs and great poems and having jonathan make the film has been a great thing for dave's legacy to help people especially the next generation to see and hear what he was doing isn't that the best music guys you can to be moved in some way to make you feel that's what gives you the shivers, that's what the tingle in your skin or when you go to a live situation and you see someone perform and they can actually take you to that other place. And it might be a sad and melancholy or happy. The music follows that emotion, that feeling. I think that's what he was trying to do. They lead you and take you little places. His ability to describe the everyday was phenomenal. The song, Too Hot to Move, Too Hot to Think. You can feel what it's like with the the dog barking down the road and you're washing the dishes. We hadn't at this stage thought of playing Triffid songs at all. We just thought, that's it, Dave's gone. We'll never play those songs again. But uh, we set up on the stage that we were going to play on to to rehearse and as soon as we played the first few notes the penny dropped and we all realised that that the way to remember Dave is through his songs and if you don't sing them if they don't get an airing then he's not being remembered and that was the beginning of, of the Triffids tribute shows. For Will and Alzi, it is about what endures beyond the music. I remember him telling me a story about one of Rilke's old girlfriends because this guy wrote in German, French and Russian 
wrote poetry. One of these uh, guys said to this friend of Rilke's, if he had a mother tongue, what would it be? And she says, ridiculous. Poets don't have mother tongues. And he said, well, if, if he did, what would it be? And she said, he spoke angelic. And he gave me a look that seemed so knowing as if I understood exactly what he meant. That if he told me then and there he was an angel, I would have believed him. Transferring Dave and the Triffids and his other work into the modern way of experiencing someone that hasn't been around for almost 25 years, whether it's through podcasts or music streaming or a film, really, really hard work. And if it's not done, then he will just remain in relative obscurity. And even though I don't have any involvement in nurturing or promoting Dave, Dave's work, I don't mind that because I'm not the person to do it. Because the only thing that really matters to me is that I was his friend. Dave's work, as with any great artist, demands a response. Reading his poems or lyrics is exciting, and the quiet spaces in his music offer small holes to bury into, for my imagination to spark. Picking up the mood, I hop aboard a different tour bus, hurtling through the hell and heaven that is the wide open road. Well, the drums rolled off in my forehead And the guns went off in my chest Remember carrying the baby just for you Crying in the wilderness I lost track of my friends, I lost my kin I cut them off as limbs I drove out over the flatland Hunting down UL Hill And the sky was big and empty my chest filled to explode I yelled my insides out of the sun At the wide open road It's a wide open road It's a wide open road We were somewhere on the set of Solid Gold when the drugs began to take hold. The girls in leg warmers and zebra print the strips of material disappearing inside crevices of lean bodies, glitter shimmering on eyelids. They danced in the spiderwebs of cages as we played live the soundtrack of the same song in different positions. The top ten countdown, Prince, Wham, Irene Cara, the silver sequence of Guillaume's vest swooned into the glitter ball as he danced in the dark with his guitar. It's up to you, Frank said, New York, New York. Our voices picked up the tunes from the road together as we blew through the towns. So you're from down under, Dick Clark said when we got off the Enterprise. And we nodded and found it hard to remember our names on live television. And I missed the hand claps and we spoke as if English was our second language. Rob forgot to plug in the keyboard. As my guitar stroked itself, the word from Oz was that we were number two on the sales charts and radio had just started to play us. 
We waited for Thriller to shift. I was in demand and it upset the band and it was Guillaume who wanted to be the rock star. By the time this show airs, you'll be home. What do you want to do then? Dick asked. Have a holiday, Guillaume replied. Next up, we have Madonna. Glenn introduced us to the Enterprise and the wheels of the bus went round and round and faster onto the radio dial of K-Rock and the payola of the coke wheel spinning and working girls and the fastest route competition. It took me three minutes to get Paddy on the bus and naked, said Guillaume, and we believed him because we fell asleep after LA and woke up outside the Kabuki Theatre in San Francisco and Paddy was there and never left. Do you know the way? Dion asked, San Jose. Above the top bunk, a small shelf and the collection where the crew took Polaroids, they snuck into the bedroom. The girls ranked by time, their phone numbers alongside, never called again. The girls were taken and they lined up whenever the bus stopped and we left Guillaume in San Antonio, tired of waiting for him to leave the girls. The stories about the collection grew until they became the only stories we ever told, even as the girls disappeared in our rearview mirror. It was new, the view from the bus window, out onto the freeways and diners and flatness and the planes coming in to land over the roofs of the houses slick with rain. We carried bruises on our foreheads from the warm deluge of Foster's cans that would fall whenever we opened a cupboard or the fridge door. Guillaume couldn't leave a beer unfinished. Have you seen her? Elvis cried, thumbing a ride. Kentucky rain. I dare you to streak to the stage door, he said, and the winner gets to sleep in the bedroom tonight. I stripped my gear off and with dark, cold eyes, climbed over a barbed wire fence, heat shimmering off concrete, and there they all were, a crowd of people lined up waiting for our show, all looking at what was still swinging. But I kept going and touched the door and dodged girls' hands, and when I ran back, the band's faces were lined up like laughing clowns, and they'd locked the bus doors. And even the oracle wouldn't open them because he was clutching the Polaroid camera. So how do you think it feels Sleeping by yourself When the one you love The one you love Is with someone else Then it's a wide open road It's a wide open road And now you can go any place That you want to go I wake up in the morning Thinking I'm still by your side I reach out just to touch you Then I realize It's a wide open road It's a wide open road One for the collection In a Hollywood bungalow, Jim went searching L.A. woman, Mojo Rising Across the ocean, Connie waited on the line while my voice echoed around the hotel room and as the weeks went on, she said more and I said less and Guillaume said nothing. He talked about the rain in Melbourne and I looked up at the hotel ceiling with mirrors above the bed and wondered what the sky looked like outside. All down the east coast, Annie Lennox was crying in the wings between encores of sweet dreams and here comes the rain again. And I wanted to finally meet her but she was a singer's singer and I was just plain sung. Have you ever been to Paris? Harry asked. Paris, Texas. We met Glenn in an all-night diner 
and he ordered fries while he talked fast and we sat staring while our record went up the billboard charts and our gums bled when we laughed, spitting blood into the sink after a moon of orange and we hovered like seagulls on the red leather seats squawking for a stray chip. Seven days, sometimes eight a week from desert to forest and we ran ragged through the streets, screaming into the sky and collapsed into our bunks and it was the last time we saw the morning come. Glenn took us to the zoo so we could see a dingo and the company headquarters in San Diego where instead of a wall of gold records, there was a wall of guns. And Guillaume stole one and we fired it into the wide night sky. We stayed in a place where you could cast a fishing rod out the window of the hotel and sit waiting for a bite while you watched MTV. And that night we ate a plate of fresh fish and met a lobster that played each night on stage doing harmonies. There was a cream fight with Berlin and we licked the cake off our guitars. I'm going and never coming back, Johnny said, Jackson. When none of us knew the difference between awake and asleep, the Oracle drove across Canada for two days non-stop so we could play at the shithole El Macambo because the stones had been there. He showed us the Borealis, the wisps of alien life that wrapped around us as we drifted, lying on top of the Enterprise, praying that someone would beam us up into the swirling green sky. The next day we stood rigid at the right place to stand to piss into Niagara Falls. Every night there will be someone dreaming they are driving this bus and that the bus is driving out of control, the oracle said. In Portland we saw the words scratched into the green paint of the dressing room wall. If it's wet, drink it. If it's dry, smoke it. If it moves, fuck it. If it doesn't move, put it in the bus. The code of the road. So how do you think it feels When sleeping by yourself When the one you love The one you love Is with someone else I wake up in the morning Thinking I'm still by your side I reach out just to touch you Then I realize It's so wide open it's a wide hit off the road 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 It's a wide the wide open road chapter from my novel Almost a Mirror, which is published by Transit Lounge. The book is structured as a mixtape of 80s music, with each chapter revolving around a song. 
Almost a Mirror is available at all bookstores and as an ebook too. The audiobook is coming soon. Our version of Wide Open Road was recorded and produced by Jed Palmer, with vocals by Inga Liljestrom, cello by Zoe Barry, and guitars by Jed Palmer. For the original version, check out the Triffids. A big thank you to Fremantle Press for permission to read David's poems from Beautiful Waste. Coming up in the next episode, we head to the pop world, the hot, bright lights of Countdown, and explore things deep without a meaning. The song, The Unguarded Moment by The Church. The Almost a Mirror podcast is written and produced by me, Kirsten Crowth, with sound design and mixing by Jed Palmer. Thanks to Jason Walker for tech support too. This podcast is supported by the Donald Horn Creative and Cultural Fellowship from the University of Canberra. Thanks to the Australian Music Vault at Arts Centre Melbourne and punkjourney.com for helping so much with research. The theme song is written by Michael Simic and produced by Michael Mooney with vocals by La Trouble, aka Michael Mooney, and Kay Proudlove. If you'd like to listen to any of the songs featured in this podcast, head to Almost a Mirror on Bandcamp to download them and support local musicians who are really doing it tough right now. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. I look forward to your company next time. Bye.